to the text, to the law, and to the testimony. Uh, Romans chapter 15 at verse 14. I'm going to read three verses, 14, 15, and 16. So um, here they are. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, uh, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, uh, we spent a couple of three weeks on verse 14 where Paul commends the church. You may remember that. Uh, he mentions three things that he's really happy about that's going on in the, in the church there at Rome. And then he transitions in verse 15, and he says something about, but, you know, there, there were some things I had to speak very boldly uh, to you about, and, and, and I really spent most of my time on that last week, that very boldly thing, um, uh, that there are, there are times when it's, it's time to speak, not just boldly, but very boldly, and we, and we looked at that last week. And then the other part of what I said last week had to do with this whole idea of Paul and the way that he viewed himself in his role. And it, and it completely um, centers upon the administration and proclamation of the gospel. And I told you, um, it, if there's anything that you may remember about last week, one of the things that I said was, uh, the gospel is simple. It's just sometimes complex to explain. Because there's so many facets to it. There's so many... Um, uh, parts of it that need to be um, rightly understood as well. Um, That's where we were last week, and there was one thing that I wanted to say in conjunction with that, and I just ran out of time. So I want to add it tonight, if you would allow me. Um, uh, And that is, it has to do, we're going back to this whole subject of Paul's proclamation of the gospel, and it, it is simple, but it's sometimes complex to explain or difficult to explain. Um, we're going to talk more about the centrality of the gospel in a minute. But, but guys, you know, there's, there's more than one way to tell a lie. Um, one of the ways that you can tell a lie is, um, is that you can tell the truth and then add to it. Um, this is another C.S. Lewis quote. I'm sure y'all get tired of these, but C.S. Lewis said, the greatest heresies in the church have not been denials of Christian truth so much as they have been additions to it. Uh, you see, there's more than one, one way to tell a lie. One way is to tell a lie, but the other way is to tell the truth and then add to it. And he's saying that, that the greatest heresies in the Christian church have always been not so much a denial of the truth, but just additions. Um, things like, in fact, he called it, he called it Christ and... And that's what he was denouncing, this whole idea of Christ and. Christ and merit. Christ and works. Christ and baptism. <laughs> you know, in this setting, I don't know, I mean, if anybody is here who understands the gospel, I don't think you'd ever err by adding merit to Christ's finished work or works to Christ's finished work. But in the South, um, one of the things that seems to be somewhat of a, uh, a misunderstanding has to do with the role of baptism. Um, and I think that has been clouded 
my opinion, by the Church of Christ. Now, guys, I'm not talking about modes of baptism here tonight. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to... I'm talking, I'm talking about the role or using baptism as some kind of addition to the finished work of Christ. That's where the sacrament of baptism becomes very dangerous. When it becomes Christ and anything, even Christ and baptism. Guys, um, what I want to do is that I, I want to I show you something. And I, maybe I've showed this to you before. But in my time with the Lord on Tuesday morning, it came to me in just a wonderfully fresh way. And, and, I, and I'm hoping that it will settle this thing for us and you forever. Forever. That you'll never again have to wonder about the, the uh, what do I need to be baptized to be saved? Oh, I know what. You know, because um, I am told that in some circles. So, I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 4, and I want you to see something that I hope will completely settle this thing if it's ever a question in your mind. Okay? Now, there's something that you've got to understand before I can explain this. Um, In the Old Testament, there was a sign of the covenant. Okay? In the Old Testament, there was a sign of the covenant. What was it? Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. Now, in the New Testament, the sign of the covenant changed to baptism. Okay? So, the replacement of circumcision as a sign of the covenant is baptism. Okay? Everybody got that little fact? down. You got that? Okay, then this should be really simple. Because in Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking about how um, God justifies the ungodly in verse 5. And then in in verse 10, this is Romans 4.10. Let me read 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Okay, you remember that? Um, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Okay. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Let me read it differently. Was it before or after he had received the sign of the covenant? It was not after. But before he received the sign of the covenant. Um, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make them father. Do you you see that, ladies and gentlemen? When was Abraham reckoned righteous? It was before, without, apart from, not in in, in conjunction with. The sign of the covenant. No. The sign of the covenant came after he had already been reckoned righteous. Do you see it? The sign of the covenant is not a part of being reckoned righteous or being justified. 
It's a sign of the covenant. That's what it is. But it's not something that, ha- that adds meritoriously to the already accomplished and finished work of Christ. And he's using Abraham as an example. When did he get justified? Paul says. Before he was circumcised or after? I'll just use our language. When did he get saved? Was it before he was baptized or after he was baptized? See? <laughs> Baptism has nothing to do with it, ladies and gentlemen. It, I, I mean, I, I don't mean to undercut the significance and the importance of the sacrament. But don't ever make the mistake of attaching merit to it. That would be to make the mistake that C.S. Lewis is talking about. It would be Christ and. And all of those, ladies and gentlemen, are denounced in the, the, the most violent language the Apostle Paul ever uses. In Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, when he says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him go to hell. That's what that little, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a Greek word, uh, anathema. Let him fall under a divine ban. Let him fall under a divine curse. Or, So you don't add anything to that gospel, that finished work of Christ, guys. That's, um, uh, um, this gospel is simple. <laughs> it's just sometimes complex to explain. But it never allows for any additions. It's Christ plus nothing. Okay. I wanted to do that because I wanted to do that. (laughs) Now, there's something else in verse 16 uh, that I want to draw your attention to that has become somewhat of a, um, oh, I don't know, kind of a controversial item. Um. Verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Um, It's that term, priestly service. Now, guys, um, the Roman Catholic Church, has this is a part of their argument. It's a part of their apologetic for the establishment of priests. (laughs) You know... um, even, or Protestants don't have priests. Roman Catholicism has priests. And ladies and gentlemen, whether you realize it or not, that's a huge, huge distinction. What do priests do? That's part of it. That's another part of it. They offer sacrifices. That's what Old Testament priests did. They offered sacrifices. Now they absolved sin. I mean, but, but that, by the way, that absolution of sin came later. <laughs> uh, I've said this before. The, um, I wish there were a place 
where Christians could go and confess their sin. I mean, I think the confessional is a wonderful thing. We need to confess our sins. The only problem with the confessional is when it moved into absolution. When the priest started absolving people from their sin. But in the main, ladies and gentlemen, a priest was one in the Old Testament that offered sacrifices. And so, in the early centuries of the church, there was, of course, it seems to me, I I, I can't prove this historically, but there seems to be kind of a dissatisfaction with, with simply preaching the gospel. So the early church produces this thing called, called the priesthood. Uh, or priests. With all their clerical garb and all of their hats and you know robes and little staffs and all that business. And ladies and gentlemen, that has been... Um, damaging in lots of ways. Let me mention two. One of the first things that is done is that it has created this clergy-laity dichotomy. That is, you have the clergy who wears the hats and has the staffs and the robes, and then there's the laity. And the clergy... um, Did I ever tell you... I know I told you this story. I can tell this story. I think I can tell it here. I'm going to tell this story. Um, I mean, it's the funniest story that I've ever heard. I mean, I, I, I still laugh at it. And I've told it in here before, but it was a Steve Brown story. It's in his book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. This, this actually happened. You know Steve Brown. You've heard the name. Oh, Steve Brown. Steve Brown, Key Life Ministries on the radio. You know big Steve. Um, Steve has got the voice of all voices. But Steve tells this story about going to a high school reunion. Remember that story? My wife does, I guarantee you. She's over there. Oh, no, he's telling it again. Um, he's, he's at this, he's at this uh, uh, high school reunion, and he runs into one of his girls that he, a friend, uh, girl that he used to date, and she says, oh, Steve, so good to see you. By the way, this is right in the book. You can go check it. Um, um, so good to see you. I mean, what did you do with your life? And Steve said, well, I've become a minister of the gospel. And she said, Oh, and sex is so wonderful. Do you get that? (laughs) Do you get it? Do you understand what she's saying? Well, you've got the clergy who are sexless. And then you've got the rest of us people. Ladies and gentlemen, that is so damaging to, to, to create this clergy-laity dichotomy. But it's, it's been done because of the priests with their staffs and the hats and the robes and all that business. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'm as broken as you are. And in some ways, in some areas, probably more so. I've got the same, I face some of the same issues still. That, you know, that kind of... That is nonsense. But it's the result of the creation of this priest stuff. Let me tell you the other place where, um, where it's been so damaging. Over the Lord's Supper. Um, 
I'm going to read you a quote from uh, Robert Haldane. He's just one of the commentaries that I, that I read. And Haldane says, The bread of the Lord's table at length became the body of Christ in a literal sense. The table on which it lay became the altar. The teachers became the priests who offered the sacrifice of the mass. And the contributions of Christians became offerings. And all these things and innumerable innumerable others, the figurative sense has been by gross imagination and the artifice of Satan turned into a literal sense to the utter subversion of truth. Go, Haldane. You see, guys, if I'm a priest, that means I offer sacrifices. And so now I've taken the communion table and I've turned it into an altar on which I sacrifice Christ again and again and again. And that makes me better than you because I'm handling these things that you can never touch. That's what priestcraft does for you, ladies and gentlemen. My point is, verse 16 is one of the statements that is used um, suggesting that Paul saw himself as a priest when he says, in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Now, um, um, (laughs) I want to read you one other quote. This is from Charles Hodge, but he says, in this beautiful passage, we see the nature of the only priesthood which belongs to the Christian ministry. He's about to tell us, guys, the only way that the Christian ministry can be thought of as a priesthood. Um, It is not their office to make atonement for sin or to offer a propitiatory sacrifice to God, but by the preaching of the gospel to bring men by the influence of the Holy Spirit to offer themselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 16. The only way he saw himself as performing a priestly role is by not offering sacrifices, but by the preaching of the gospel in an effort that people might be brought to Christ by the intervention of the Holy Spirit of God. Look at what he says. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. How did Paul understand his priestly role? As a proclaimer of this gospel of God thing. Why, Paul? So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Guys, Gentiles, Paul's role, in his ministerial role, was to, to, to so broadcast the gospel that Gentiles would embrace it, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit that they become um, uh, more and more sanctified and acceptable, and that the sacrifice that Paul offers is simply the people that, that God had used him to bring to Christ. It's not a reference to the priesthood, is all I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen. Paul's idea of his priestly role is simply 
the broadcast of the gospel. Nothing beyond that. Not all this hat robe business. Make the thing, the body, and offer it. And it's, um, it's a very damaging thing, ladies and gentlemen. To think of somebody who has a role in the professional clergy as a priest. I'm not a priest. I'm not a priest, ladies and gentlemen. And the only priestly service that I offer is a broadcast of the gospel in the hope that God will use it to bring more Gentiles or Jews uh, to himself. Now, uh, um, I wanted to address that to a clear that whole idea. When you see the word priestly, I wonder what where your minds race. Okay, but that's the way Paul defined his priestly role, is simply uh, using the gospel to reach Gentiles. Now, um, uh, let, me, let me read you some more, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deeds, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy by the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, guys, when you read that, there's a couple of things that at least jump out at me. I don't know whether they jumped out at you, but they jumped out at me. Um, and I bet you they jumped out at you, too. The first thing that Paul says in verse, 13, uh, verse 17 is, I am proud of my work for God. Well, pride? Isn't, isn't pride always bad in any form? Well, guys, um, uh, I, I think it's probably a safe thing to say that pride's not a good thing. But I want you to notice, um, I, mean, I mean, I just want you to look a little bit further as to what Paul has said. I'm proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Now, does that sound like a proud man? You know, um, there is, of course, a sinful pride. Uh, if nobody else is in the room guilty, uh, just put me down then. But um, um, there is certainly a sinful pride that we've got to avoid. But that is not what Paul is um, uh, suggesting in these words, I, I don't think. There were, you know, there was a time when Paul was proud of who he was and what he did. Remember that, remember that statement in Philippians when he says, I was a Jew... Um, uh, I was, you know, all these things, you know, if anybody was this, I was even more, uh, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. There was a time when the apostle Paul was proud. Um, but later on, Paul saw how that stuff was the very stuff that was keeping him, um, from the Lord Jesus. And he denounced that in chapter three, verses seven and eight. But I want to read you something, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I want to read you something that Paul wrote. Um, and if you're, if, you're, if you're eager to charge Paul with pride, then listen to this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness 
and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Does that sound like a proud man to you? Um, um, he does say later on in Galatians 4 that I, I, I boast in nothing but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But ladies and gentlemen, if you will, if you will read um, carefully, not carefully, but it's, um, he says, I'm, I'm proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Um, I don't want to hear about anything but other than what, what Christ has accomplished. But he accomplishes it, interestingly enough, through a broken man. If you really, if you really want to marvel at something, marvel at the fact that how, how Jesus could take this proud, stubborn Jew, this blasphemer, and, and turn him into something that was usable for the kingdom. But what has happened to Paul is the same thing that happens to a lot of you. He... Um, He takes broken people. He, um, he brings them to himself. And then he takes those broken people and sends them out to go minister to other broken people. And so those other broken people get fixed by somebody who got fixed who was previously broken. <laughs> That's the marvel here, ladies and gentlemen. The, the marvel is that God could use somebody as wicked as Paul was prior to his conversion. So if, if, if God could use somebody that wicked, that means he could use somebody like you. Um, it is a fine line to walk, guys. Um, uh, you know, I... Um, I would probably not say what Paul said there. I am proud of my work for God because I know it would be understood in the way that that would be uh, ugly. But I, whereas I might not say that, this is something that I would say. Um, it's in Matthew chapter 5. You don't need to turn, but um, he says this. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. I want you looking at me. <laughs> I want you to notice me. I want you to notice things about me that are... Good. I want you to look at him and say, you know, I like that. I want you to notice me. Just long enough 
before you then turn your eyes and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works. And as a result of having seen them, they immediately uh, refuse to praise you. But they give glory to God for what God has wrought in somebody as broken as you know him to be. My goodness, what God has wrought. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, I do want to draw attention to myself. And so do you. That I can say. Um, I want you to look at me just long enough so that you'll then turn your eyes away from what you see and give glory to God for what he's done. Yeah, yeah that's an exhortation, ladies and gentlemen. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works, notice them, recognize them, and applaud them. But ultimately, that God gets glory for them. Now, one other thing in this, this text back in Romans 15 that I want to address, and then we'll quit. Um, yeah, I got six minutes. Um, because here again, this is another controversy. This is another statement by Paul that created some controversy. It's in verse 19. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem, etc., etc. I'm drawing your attention to the, the, the statement of um, signs and wonders. Have you ever heard of that? If you've been around the theological world, you probably have, because back in the 80s and the 90s, there was a movement that was led by a guy by the name of John Wimber. Anybody here recognize that name? John Wimber, um, um, in fact, he called it, I think this is right, he called it power evangelism. And what he said there was that the only evangelism that can be done, or the only way to do evangelism is when it is accompanied by signs and wonders. The very statement that you find here, um, uh, that, that if you're doing evangelism, that there ought to be some kind of signs or, sign or wonder going on while you're doing it, so that people would be converted. That was a whole movement, ladies and gentlemen. A book was written about it. Now, let me say real quick, couple of things about that and we'll quit. Um, there are two other places in the New Testament where Paul uses those two words pretty much side by side. Um, signs and wonders, that is. He uses it in um, 2 Corinthians 12, um, verse 12, where he says, um, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. He uses that same formula one other time in 2 Thessalonians 2. This is important, guys. Uh, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now, did you pick up on anything in those two, two statements? He says that signs and wonders can be used as an attestation of a true apostle that's in 2 Corinthians 12. But he also says that signs and wonders are something that can be produced by um, the lawless one and the activity of, the, of Satan. 
So, ladies and gentlemen, if signs and wonders are being um, performed, you've got a 50-50 chance that it's either an attestation of a true prophet or something really devilish. Guys, um, signs and wonders in and of themselves prove nothing. Because they can be performed by demons and they can be performed by apostles. Um, there are numerous places in the New Testament where miracles are associated with apostles and were, those miracles were used to authenticate the apostolic message. With this provision, <laughs> in the days prior to the delivery of the New Testament. Uh, there's a big issue that we're not going to get into, but um, in the attestation of the apostolic message, God saw fit to accompany apostles with certain uh, miracles that attested to the veracity of the message before the New Testament was delivered. <laughs> what I'm saying is, ladies and gentlemen, is that once the New Testament got written, and once it got delivered to the church in its um, pretty much present form, this was our apostolic authority, and signs and wonders were taken away. The only authority I need is not some kind of miraculous demonstration up here. The only authority I need is simply this. Thus, Seth, the Lord. That's all you need. That's all any of us need. Guys, I'm not saying that God does not do miracles on occasion. Um, but I would say this. We're not to seek them as a way of doing evangelism. All that does, and I, and I, I think all that the Wimber movement did, was get us away from what the ministry was really supposed to be about. And that is the proclamation of the gospel. Um, that, ladies and gentlemen, produces the miracles that we so desire. Just the proclamation of the purity of the gospel. Do that. And um, don't waste your time uh, looking for some kind of miraculous display. Let's quit. Our Father, I pray that you will um, give us a, a great desire to be noticed. Not so that men's eyes will fix on us, but that they will see the beautiful things that you have done and are doing in our lives. Might we indeed draw attention. Might attention be drawn to the fact that we love our wives and our wives are exercising or and playing the role of a biblical wife might we might the world see that that our our language is seasoned with salt might the world see that there is a certain peace and a rest and a joy to us yes lord use us to draw the attention of the world but not so that we might be elevated but only might they notice us long enough that their eyes be turned to heaven to see the God who has provided 
a perfect sacrifice for sin in Christ Jesus. Do that, Father. Use us. Use this small expression of the body of Christ here at Gracie Van to convince this community that indeed God has made a way for people to be forgiven. Use us to declare that message, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and good night.